Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, where education meets recovery. Archway is a sober high school in the sunny heart of Houston, Texas. We meet the individual educational needs of teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. Archway is the largest recovery high school in the nation, and we are here to remind you that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. This is A Way Through. Hello, and welcome to A Way Through. My name is Jamie Edwards, and I'm filling in for Sasha today. In today's episode, we're talking about LGBTQIA, teens and families, and how to be an ally. We will also discuss how adolescents and families who might be struggling can find help and support. If you haven't listened to previous episodes of A Way Through, I invite you to start now. We ask that you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. We also ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram at Archway Academy and on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. Our message on A Way Through is that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. There is a way through teen substance use and mental and behavioral health issues. When you subscribe, like, or share our podcast, it enables others to hear our message. Reminding students and worried families in the throes of teenage substance that there are viable options for restoring their child's physical, mental, emotional, and academic health. Our guest today is Michael Lesher. He is the owner of Authentivative Counseling Services. He's a former art teacher and school counselor. Welcome, Michael, to the show. We're glad that you are joining us today. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are super excited to have you. The thing that I found really interesting is that you are a potter. I am. Yeah. So I started doing ceramics back when I was in high school. And I had some real, I had amazing art teachers all the way from elementary all the way through my high school career, which led me into um, my original career as an art educator. And so I was a teacher for a good seven years. And when it was during that time that I really started to recognize art allowed for self-expression, which then allowed for kids to kind of just open up naturally. The medium itself just led kids expressing themselves and letting me know what was going on with them. And so oftentimes uh, I didn't know what to do except refer them to the school counselor. And so that's what got me really involved in mental health and counseling itself. And uh, as I've been opening up my practice, my actual practice is at an artist studio at Spring Street Studios in Sawyer Yards. And so, yeah, so one half of my studio is the ceramic studio. Uh, and then the other half is my office space where we'll do talk therapy. And then it's also shared with another artist who's a painter 
I think I can say her name, Audrey Omenson, and she is also a clinician too. So she uses the space for the exact same reasons that I use the space to provide therapy, but then also have my own, my own therapy or therapeutic outlet through art. And I've started to do some workshops with the, with the medium of ceramics as well. And starting out with just utilizing it with other clinicians, and then we're slowly uh, I'm going to be starting to do some more groups that way too. So doing a little bit of therapeutic art activity. Mm-hmm. How fantastic. So two things. Uh, a couple of years ago, we did the art of recovery. And that's where mm-hmm. I first discovered uh, the facility where you're at there, Sawyer your Yards. And we worked with an artist there. She did some great stuff for us. And then the other question that I have for you is where can people find out about the ceramic uh, offerings that you're giving? So I, it's just the beginning, uh, but they can come to my website, uh, authenticative.com. So that's, uh, it's two words put together, authentic and innovative. Uh, so if you just spell that out, authenticative, A-U-T-H-E-N-T-O-V-A-T-I-V-E. It's a little long, but it's a, a nice title. I like it a lot. Uh, Authenticative.com. And you can just click on my website and there's a contact me page on, on that website. Perfect. And we will drop that in the show notes so that people will have access to that. And I'm really glad that you talked about the origin of the name. Uh, I love that. I, I think it's great. It's honestly two things that I'm very passionate about. I think we need to continue to be innovative, especially in this ever-changing world. Yep. And then I just believe in the the beauty of the authentic relationship, um, which is what counseling it really is. It's it's uh, discovering something about the two people that are sitting in the chairs together and uh, working through and being our most authentic selves when we arrive in that space. So that's my goal is, as a counselor is to try to allow or do the best that I can to make sure that my clients are showing up in an authentic and safe space. That's wonderful. I have no doubt you were a fantastic teacher too. Mm-hmm. Uh, education is my background. And so um, always have a, a love for other teachers. Another thing I want to ask you is, did you... I know you're from Ohio originally, correct? Mm, yeah. Did you teach in Ohio or did you teach here in Texas or both? So I originally moved here. My uh, sister had moved to Texas first. She lives out in Katy. And I uh, have taught, I started teaching, I guess it's been 16 years now. It was 16 years when I started teaching in Aldine School District. So okay. that was my first real teaching job. But I always like to tell my little hiatus of a job before I started teaching. So I worked at a camp up in Michigan, in Jackson, Michigan, and it was an outdoor education facility. So they, you know, those camps that you would go to in fifth grade or sixth grade with the whole entire school, your whole entire class. Uh, well, that was the camp that I helped operate. I was an outdoor educator. And so we had like high ropes course, we had a nature center, we had uh, the dining hall, everything, you know, so I was a residential camp. And it really was a fun experience just to be in the outdoors, be connected to nature. It was one of my first times like getting connected with with a lot of people really quickly, you know, you have to, you have to engage people quickly. Yeah. Yeah. What a fantastic experience. I've not been to Michigan, but um, I hear. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. 
How, how fun. Let's jump in to our interview today and talking about being an ally. I've heard you present. I've seen your work. It's fantastic. And again, we're just super excited to have you here and talking about this very important topic. Let's start by you telling us a little bit about Authenitative. Anything you want to share? So I, I guess mainly that I am a counselor. I'm working towards connecting art and therapy together. But as a clinician, I see clients on a regular basis. That's my my main work that I do. I also do some workshops here and there, mainly for organizations that want to know more about becoming an ally, what it means to be an ally. I do a little bit of volunteering with the Texas Counseling Association as well, and I'm a director on what's called Texas SAGE, um, which is an LGBT organization uh, and division of the Texas Counseling Association. Yeah, my main job and joy is working with clients. And I see a wide range of clients, some of them from the LGBT community, some of them not, and working on a lot of issues, mainly around depression and anxiety, but then also LGBT issues too. So uh, I see the gamut of the LGBT alphabet soup as well. So whether you might be intersex or uh, bisexual or transgender, anybody from that from the larger community, I definitely see clients from from all those areas. So, do you see uh, children all the way through adults? That's a good question. I have been working more with adults as of lately. Oftentimes, I will take a teen client, and I did also. So, I, and I think we all change over time. I think I was just talking about that. Like we early on in my counseling career, um, I was working more with teenagers because that's where I felt most comfortable. And now I've kind of recognized that more adults are kind of wanting uh, more counseling these days too. And so I I feel a little bit uh, even more comfortable working with adults. So, but I have done a lot of work with uh, teens in the past. I actually ran a camp for five years that that was a strictly LGBT uh, camp. Um, I think we are always evolving as a society. And it was through my experience working at that camp uh, and working with with the kiddos in that camp that it gave me a, a just a different eye and a different understanding and really humanized the whole entire experience as well. Yeah. Well, and thank goodness for the advances that we're making and thank goodness for the work that you and others are doing to help advance that agenda, offering safer, more inclusive spaces. Very important. Yes, definitely. I think it is important. And uh, hopefully we'll get into talking more about some of the resources where these um, groups are still existing and and still um, moving forward. Uh, what's great is there there is a point to where the capacity of it may not be as necessary, right? Like that's the ultimate goal that I don't have to be coming and having these talks and sitting in on podcasts to give information it it will eventually be common knowledge and people will have more care and love and empathy for others ultimately every single time that i do some sort of presentation one of the first things that i start out with is just acknowledging that this exists and acknowledging somebody's existence is so 
valuable and important and allowing somebody to be their most authentic self is so important. Absolutely. It's critical, critical. So let's start with just the basics. Can you tell us, for those that may not know, what LGBTQIA stands for? What does it mean? Yeah. So I think most people know the LGB part and maybe the T as well. So that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And then the Q could be queer or questioning. And queer oftentimes is one of these words that it's more used by the community to describe themselves, or it's an overarching umbrella term for the LGBT community. So it, it, it has a couple of different meanings. Questioning, meaning you're still kind of questioning what your identities are, whether it be gender or sexuality or any of the above, anything, honestly. And then I stands for intersex and A stands for asexual, meaning you're not you don't identify, have a sexuality. You, you, you have it, A means no. So anytime you see A before something, uh, it could be, it, it means no. Um, so uh, asexual or agender. So maybe you don't identify with the gender. Um, I think the most important part is being inclusive. And so even organizations uh, for instance, the Texas Counseling Association had that I, I was talking about earlier. There's a division. Uh, it used to be Texas. It used to be Talgebra Tech. So uh, I have to think through what all those uh, letters are. So, but it has the LGBT part in it. And they've okay. actually changed their name to T Sage, which is S A I G E, and that's the Society for Sexual, Affectional, Intersex, and Gender Expansive Identities, and. The whole purpose of changing that name is really just to be more inclusive, to not make this such a binary identifying thing, but making it more on a scale. Uh, and I, I think we're probably going to talk about that soon as well is like the Kinsey scale, right? This is yes. uh, kind of a, um, a way of that was. Well, the Kinsey scale was a measurement used by um, a scientist who kind of discovered that, um, you know, nobody's sexuality is binary. You know, it's not on one side or the other. Typically, and within most people, you have some sexual tendencies that draw you to one or the other side, but may also be somewhere in the middle. And so the whole point of the Kinsey scale is to kind of identify that sexuality isn't so binary and that it is a gamut in a in a scale. So does that relate to the continuum theory of gender? I've heard you mm -hmm. talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. So there has been further development over the years beyond the Kinsey scale that kind of looks at gender and sexuality. There's a diagram that I love to use whenever I'm doing a demonstration or, or doing a, a program, the genderbred person. Yeah. And so the genderbred person really talks about four different areas and those four areas being sexuality, gender identity, sex assigned at birth, and then gender expression and noticing that all four of these things are very different and aren't, aren't the same in any way. So gender identity is what person identifies themselves as. 
whether it be boy, girl, or somewhere in the middle. So the whole entire scale from male to female, or not even identifying as any gender whatsoever, but just as being. And then sexuality is who you are attracted to. And this could be a romantic attraction or a sexual attraction as well. Attraction and sexual identity. And then I was talking about um, gender expression. So gender expression is the way that somebody might express their gender. So oftentimes we can see this in the colors that somebody might wear. So, you know, we we have these gender reveal parties. So boy and girl. Uh, So pink for boys, boy for girls. Or it could be through the style of hair or the use of makeup or the types of pants a person wears. So all of these things can be a way of expressing their masculinity or femininity as well. Very interesting. So to dive deeper into that, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is despite, as we've been talking about, more inclusivity and that expanding and things becoming more normalized, there's still a lot of myths about sexual orientation. You've talked about that some already, and you've mentioned You know, we identify pink with girls, blue with boys, and we also think about some family members or loved ones may assume, for example, a myth that being gay is a phase and that you'll grow out of it, or that teens may decide to be gay if they have a gay friend or they read about homosexuality or they hear about gay people from others or they see it in movies or TVs, things like that. So. What are some other dangerous myths that exist? Yeah, I I would say it is, well, kind of what we were just talking about prior to this question even of gender and sexuality being the same thing. Gender, just because you may identify as male, does not necessarily mean that you are going to be heterosexual. Just because you might be identified as male at birth and then you have effeminate qualities about you doesn't guarantee that you are homosexual, right? right? So gender and sexuality, everything is on a spectrum. It's all this beautiful rainbow. It's all of these different colors. And these four categories that we talked about before, gender expression, gender identity, sexuality, and gender assigned at birth are all on continuums. And that's where the letter I for intersex kind of comes into play because people will have a, have, well, if they're assigned at birth, they must be this. I've worked with clients before who were wrongly assigned at birth because the doctor had to choose male or female at the time of their birth. But really they had anatomies that were both male and female. And so this is something that exists in nature that actually is something and that it can't necessarily be identified as male and female, that the doctor was kind of forced or uh, told that they had to choose one. Research on adolescents over the past 20 years shows that, as you were talking about, sexual orientation develops early, both gay and straight children experiencing their first crush at around age 10. Uh, And as you've explained, homosexuality and bisexuality are both part of normal sexual identity. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The age in exploring sexuality has definitely reduced, and especially 
I, I do believe society plays and culture plays a part in the exploration as becoming a little bit more well-known. There's a little bit less innocence, but naturally kids are even going into puberty a little bit earlier. And so as puberty is starting to happen, so are kids exploring what their sexuality is because they're starting to have hormonal changes that are happening at an earlier age, around the ages of 10 or 11. That doesn't mean every teenager is having or preteens are having this experience, but it is a, a phenomenon that is occurring uh, as of recently as well. But during the teenage years is when kids are going to be exploring their sexuality. Now, exploring gender. We can't just leave that out, right? So exploring gender actually happens at a way earlier age. And kids can identify at the ages of two or three gender. You know, they they I acknowledge and identify gender traits. So like we were talking about earlier, like pink for girls, blue for boys. Boys play with cars and trucks and girls play with dolls. And so... I think it's really important that we recognize that the stigma or the gender that we put onto kids at a very early age and even before they even come out of <laughs> of another human being, right? We already have a preconceived notion of what we want our kids to be and that can play a huge impact on the development of our kid and their their ability to just explore that for themselves. And so human development is really important to this. And when I do presentations, one of the things that we talk about is Erickson's stages of development. And in Erickson's stages of development, he actually talks a little bit more about personal identity. And the identity is explored and it needs a form of kind of experience or what he calls a crisis in order to be able to explore that and to understand that for themselves. Otherwise, they're kind of blindly going into a decision without making any kind of understanding for themselves. So what does Erickson define as a crisis? So that could be a lot of different things. So a crisis could be as simple as kind of, so let's say it's a teenager, right? And the teenager goes into the locker room and they just feel really uncomfortable um, or they aren't identifying with uh, possibly their physical parts as well. If that's happening, and that's there's actually a scientific word around that, which is called dysphoria. Um, so not connecting with your actual sexual parts that you were born with, that can be a kind of indicator of gender identity and what what gender and exploring that. So that could be in itself can be a, a um, just explore, exploration and a beginning of exploration. That was kind of a really high level one. So I might like replace that <laughs> with something like maybe somebody not feeling comfortable wearing a dress. So a female born female but not feeling comfortable wearing dresses, would rather wear slacks to school and feeling more comfortable that way in, in their gender expression. Okay, those are, those are great examples. Are there resources that you, that you would recommend for parents whenever they're, they're seeing this at a younger age with their kids, really along the whole continuum from you know, childhood all the way through adolescence? What are some resources that you recommend for 
parents to help their children as they have these various experiences. I, I think as a parent, it's important to understand your own biases first, right? And understanding where you might feel uncomfortable when talking about just sex in general, or talking about gender identity or any of these topics. Because I could imagine parent hearing any of this lingo or talk or definitions at the very beginning could even already feel uncomfortable. So it's about knowing and being educated. And so there are a couple of websites out there that I think do a really good job of explaining, giving more information. So GLSEN, G-L-S-E-N, is a great website. The HRC website has a catalog called Schools in Transition. And so this helps schools specifically get connected. Actually, I, I have other, other suggestions for parents specifically. P Flag of Houston is a great resource. So if you have a child that is starting to kind of talk about their sexuality and maybe are not are gender nonconforming, then possibly PFLAG would be a great organization to connect with um, and be able to have open conversations and dialogues with other parents. Um, Can you tell us what PFLAG is? Yeah, this is called Parents of Lesbians and Gays or for Lesbians and Gays. And it's really a support group and it's ran by other parents as well. And so it's an organization where parents can come together to just discuss some of the things that are going on. It's a, it's a support group. And Houston has a chapter and is definitely a um, well-organized one. And uh, anybody is invited to attend their meetings. So uh, you can look up PFLAG, it's P-F-L-A-G of Houston, and you'd be able to find that. We will definitely drop that in our show notes as well. You know, Archway's mission is to provide a safe space for LGBTQIA students. And you've said that there are some resources that are specifically for schools and organizations Mm -hmm. that are working to be supportive allies. Can you go into more detail on that? So for schools, I I think it's important that schools get training and specifically ally training to be a, a beginner. So for that, that's one thing that I offer. Yeah. And okay. I, I'd be happy to provide more information about that. I think for schools specifically is just having some sort of game plan in place or knowing that this can be something that exists. So let's make sure that we are ready for it. I think a lot of the issues around that come with bathroom policies. Yes. Uh, seen that in the news so much. And making sure that there's a place for all people to feel comfortable when going and using the restroom and that that restroom isn't halfway across the large school as well and that it's readily available. I think also just um, having a plan in place. I think confidentiality is really important too. So if you know that you're not going to be comfortable talking about this with with a student, make sure that you know somebody that would be feel a little bit more comfortable talking about it. I think for school counselors, it's important to know about like record keeping and some students are going to want to be called by their their name, not their dead name, which their dead name would refer to their old name before uh, changing it. And um, that can be really, and using correct pronouns and and names can be really important to a kid who is exploring their gender as well. 
So that's a lot of information right there. And I want to back up and just kind of write that down because it's very good information that I think is very uh, important. And I've used the word very a whole lot right there. So let's go back and talk about when you say dead name. Hmm. So that may not be something that a lay person would necessarily be familiar with. Can you can you kind of break that down? Yeah. And I also I feel like once again, it's kind of a high level example, and I'm not sure how deep into our discussion we are going here. But what a dead name is, is the name that maybe they were originally called. And it is actually traumatizing for a kid who is transgender to be called by that name because they're no longer like if this is a transgender uh, male to female, their original name was Harry, and now they want to be called Carrie. That would be really hard to hear their name Harry over and over because that's not as they identify and they want to be called by their their now their their name now. Um, and so the dead name, if let's say a substitute went into the classroom of that child one day and they call out Harry, Harry, uh, that could be really traumatizing to that kid because they don't identify with that name. They don't identify with that gender. Okay. So that very important in training. And then you also said pronouns. Mm-hmm. So if, if once again, Carrie now goes by he or she and her, so they would no longer want to be called he or him. And so it's really important to use the correct pronouns. Some people like to be called they. Some people like to be called Z or Zer. Um, there's a lot of different other pronouns out there. A lot of people have problems with using the word they because it uh, elicits a plural uh, pronoun. Shakespeare has always used the word they to uh, indicate one person as well. And I think also if you just came upon somebody that you didn't know who was coming uh, or you could say that they're on their way, you know, so (laughs) coming or going, they're on their way you know, and that could refer to one person or that could refer to multiple people. So it it has always been that we could use the word they as a singular pronoun as well. Okay. So talking about that and the traumatization of using the dead name and not using the proper pronouns. So we know, uh, statistically speaking, that adolescents who are bullied, who um, who are struggling in the systems in which they operate, where they are being rejected, either by friends or family members, uh, school systems, communities, we know that they have much higher rates of mental and behavioral health issues along with substance use. So can you speak to that? Because that is at the core of what you know, Archway addresses and what we deal with. And so I'd I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, you're naming just some of the risky behaviors, but then also just the mental health issues that are uh, happening in society. So uh, stigma is number one, violence, homelessness, risk-taking behaviors, like you said, substance abuse or drinking behaviors, suicidal ideations, suicidal thoughts, barriers to healthcare as well. So because of the discrimination, there's oftentimes doctors that won't work with trans clients, doctors that won't 
also worked with the LGBT community uh, or the lesbian or gay community too. And so there, I know, uh, I'm seeing your face in, in shock. It, shock. It's, it is. And they, out of anybody, need more resources to be taken care of. We mentioned depression, anxiety, and then also sexual promiscuity that out of just lack of normalization, because one, they're trying to explore this for themselves and they don't feel that they have a safe space to explore that. And so when they find a place where they are able to explore and it's not safe, it leads to other risky sexual activity as well and and lack of education around it. So most importantly, I think it's just important. uh, Let's go back to the parents, right? It's important for those parents to have an understanding of sexuality, but then just general sexual education. It's kind of funny. um, My husband and I were in the midst of uh, fostering and adoption. And congratulations. <laughs> Wait, I have to take you. a minute to congratulate <laughs> you. How wonderful. It's a long process and we're still in the trainings for it all. And what was really interesting was the training on sexual behavior and sexual understanding. And it's just like one of those things that you wish like every parent should get once they know that they're pregnant or about to have kids. All the every parent should have this training because really it gets you to start thinking about what you don't know. And what is what is healthy sexual behaviors as well, and so exploring that has really like broadened my eyes as well, especially if when I might be fathering a a, a girl or a female, you know, right. and knowing about the postmenstrual system and all of that, you know, I've never experienced that for myself, so I need to educate myself on what that's going to look like, have a support system around me to be able to address that as well and know where those resources are. So firsthand, I'm experiencing what most parents must be experiencing when they find out that their kid might be part of the LGBT community. Most times the issues are not with the kid themselves, but with the parents and their maybe lack of acceptance or lack of knowledge. That's why when you were talking, when we were talking earlier, do I work with teens? I tend to work more with their parents because it's the parents that need a little bit more direction or understanding and education. That's why uh, I kind of was talking about that earlier. That I I meet more with adults now uh, because it's an adult issue, not necessarily a teen issue. How fascinating. That is so interesting to me. So are there specific resources? I know you mentioned flag earlier. Are there other resources? So another resource would be Montrose Counseling Center for the youth themselves to feel like they are part of a inclusive group. There's an organization called Hatch, uh, H-A-T-C-H, and that's a support group for the youth. I believe they also have parenting groups as well. Okay. And then also your your jaw might drop on this, but there are a lot of church organizations that are becoming more and more accepting than ever before. And just here in Houston, 
Kindred Lutheran is a great example of that. Yes. Holy Family uh, Episcopal Church is an example of that. Metropolitan MCC, I believe it's MCC in the Heights is a great example of that as well. And they provide just a space where people can feel accepted, loved, and um, understood for who they are. Fantastic. And we will include again all of those in our show notes for our listeners. I also encourage Googling, you know, (laughs) there's so many resources out there, but also looking for gay friendly or LGBT friendly organizations. You can typically find that just by doing a simple Google or going to some of these organizations that already exist. Like I mentioned, the Mantra Center, and they may even have a list of referrals for them for for as well, too. We have been talking about how there's greater resources. Uh, And so more and more youth are feeling like they can come out. I know it's not nearly where we want it to be. We still have a long way to go, but more and more youth are feeling feeling like they can come out during their adolescent years. And so specifically, what are some similarities and differences that you see today versus in the past about coming out and how can we as allies make that a more comfortable and natural transition for adolescents? I think number one is that we just need to be empathetic human beings. What empathy means is really putting ourselves in the shoes of somebody else. And so if we can really think from that viewpoint, if I went into school and I didn't feel comfortable and understand my gender isn't aligning with the way that I would like to express, how can I build that? And where can I find that community? That would be number one, is just being an empathetic human being. I think the second thing, which we've kind of already talked about today too, is just be educated, know what exists, and also be aware of what your kids are looking at online. You know, it is really hard to protect our kids from everything. And it is really important for us to be aware that social media online communities exist and that we should be watching that for our kids. Once again, that I think you all have done a podcast on that uh, already, right? Yes. Uh, the importance of just being vigilant with our kiddos um, and what they are, uh, are seeing and that you're building that trust with your kids that they can come and talk to you about anything, no matter what it is. They're taking away that shame Taking away that guilt is really important too. So empathy, be educated, and take away and have trust with your children around hard subjects is really important. And you've mentioned so many resources. Again, we're going to drop them in the show notes that can help parents to do that, help community members, help loved ones to be able to do that. We know that statistically speaking, Teens who experience rejection by their parents and caregivers are at higher risk for mental health issues, behavioral health issues, substance use. We talked about that. And I know in your presentations, you refer to some of that in the Trevor Project. Can you talk about the Trevor Project? Yeah, Trevor Project is a great organization, and I'm surprised I didn't mention them earlier already. They do a national survey of LGBT youth, and they uh, give us a better 
statistics around the actual issues that are occurring. Um, they also provide other resources. They also have a hotline for kids that are really struggling, don't have any support systems whatsoever. Um, they have hotlines uh, in which a kid can call if they are struggling. And they provide resources and research, you know, so it's a great organization. What about for fellow practitioners? Do you have resources for fellow practitioners in the health and social service industries that would help Mm -hmm. them to be better allies? I think it's important to know where resources for just physical health needs are are offered. So Legacy Health seems to be a pretty accepting community of practitioners and providers. And I would even say that Montrose Legacy Health is even uh, more specifically going to offer LGBT um, services. Just knowing doctors that can be trusted um, and where somebody can talk openly about what their needs are uh, is really important as well. I know one of the things that I wanted you to expand more on, like I'm, I'm thinking I have your presentation in, in my mind and you have all the different flags and you have the different things. And I know you can't go into all of those, but when we were talking earlier about the different components of the gingerbread person, mm-hmm. and uh, can you repeat those orientation? So gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and sexual attraction. Those are the kind of the four, and all of these are on a spectrum. So imagine uh, gender identity on a spectrum between womanness to manness, gender expression, feminine to masculine. Uh, sexual attraction, attracted to men, attracted to female, and it's all on the spectrum. And biological sex, like we mentioned, uh, the intersex community falls into into this area as well. So if we imagine all of that as one giant rainbow and an understanding that this is like a continuum, I think we can uh, have a better understanding altogether of where, where somebody might be. And oftentimes, I'll bring that up in, you know, if I'm working with the the kid and they're still exploring and trying to understand it for themselves, we might even utilize that as a way of kind of exploring, well, where where do you identify? What are you feeling in this moment? And that's a part of exploration. Right. And it's very, I think it's important for parents to know it's very normal for there to be, am I correct? It's very normal for there to be fluidity as mm-hmm. adolescents are exploring that exploring their sexuality and trying to figure out where they where they fit in mm-hmm. and that can um, be the hard part the, that that can be where conflict arises like one day my kid is wearing dresses the next they're super mask or masculine right and so they're exploring that and that can be really hard i don't know if people are familiar with sex in the city but recently and just like that they have a is the 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 next uh generation of sex in the city the show and and just like that they are exploring those really heavy topics also jonathan is there you know these resources are more available than we even think they are jonathan jonathan van ness uh one of the queer eye uh top five guys he just has a show out on Netflix where he explores 
the non-binary as well. And they do a wonderful job of explaining things. Even shows like RuPaul's Drag Race could be a way of learning and understanding and just understanding gender expression. This season is the first season that they have a heterosexual male on their cast who identifies as cisgender. And so as you like watch these shows and there's questions that you have, like take mental note of those questions and then try to find some answers, you know, find the resources, find, find people that you can talk to about that for sure. Like I said, oftentimes it's the parents who just need some answers for themselves to be able to understand this a little bit more and to be able to provide that safe space for for the kiddo. My office can only provide one hour a week or two hours a week at the most, you know, and that is not going to do enough. It really has to be a family exploration and uh, change that happens as well. Right. Which is why, as you've mentioned throughout this podcast, is that it's so important for the church. It's so important for the school. It's so important for the various community organizations to be educated, to be that support for the individual and for the family. So that that leaves me with one last question I, I wanted to ask you is, what about those parents who are supportive and who who want to provide that safe space and they see maybe they are supportive, but their kid is still struggling with their identification. Do you feel like we've covered that well enough about what parents can do or? Yeah, there were words that I I think going back to that is be patient, that they're not going to know right, like overnight what they are. And that just because you might be supportive doesn't mean the rest of society is where you're at. Right. Right. And, and that there are all these microcosms of a child's development that are influencing them as well. And so just because you as a family, the church, the, the school, the, all those parts are supporting this child, there's still a non-normative society around this. We, it, it, when I describe this in my um, presentations, we use the words heteronormative and cisnormative. Heteronormative, meaning heterosexuality is the norm for everybody. And then cisnormative, meaning that identifying to the gender that you were assigned at birth is norm, right? And so this is the society that we still live in today, but these are the norms of society. And so this non-binary fitting into that still may cause some stress or anxiety within that individual. And so that is worth exploring as as well, is this can still bother a kid. And, you know, we could be overly accepting too, that then that puts another expectation on the kid. <laughs> that could be a possibility too. Okay. Okay. Well, it you know, and it's just, this conversation is just a reminder to me of why it's so important that we progress as a society because we are talking about life and death we are talking about i don't i don't know the right word michael um hopefully you could help me out here clinically but you know when we go back to those stats and the mental and behavioral health and the substance like the stigma that is still attached to it even though we're much further along 
is literally life and death. And as you said, be an empathetic human being, just being a decent human being, like being a decent human being. Right. And sometimes it is important for a kid to go to counseling to be able to find their voice as well, you know, be able to express who they are to those support groups that are around them and be able to talk about these very hard things. Teenagers are really hard. They, yes, they don't know how to express themselves all the time through words. And sometimes the words, I mean, we have a difficulty expressing these hard issues through words. I think you could even hear me in our discussion today stutter over some of the things that I was saying because it is still always being worked through. I, too, am continuously changing. And so let's be okay with that space. Let's be okay with not having to assign all of this right now and be okay with the questioning. That is a fabulous way to take us out of this interview. It's very good stuff. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and your insight and your personal experience and being that authentic individual who is being innovative in the way that they are trying to make space for individuals as as they question this. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Thank you for having me.